Hello, everyone. Welcome to CUHK Anthropology Podcast. Today, we are speaking to Professor Andrew Kidnis, the Chairman of the Department of Anthropology at CUHK. As a radical student back in the U.S., he was interested in Maoism and then started learning Chinese language. Then he becomes the research assistant of Judith Vagua, working on Chinese medicine in a small village in Shandong. There, he had his first research on everyday rituals, kinship, and gift giving in the village. Since then, Andy continued his research on contemporary China, with topics ranging from education to urbanization to the funeral industry. In his new book, *The Funeral of Mr. Wang*, he studies the social change in urbanizing China through the lens of funerals, the funerary industry. And practices of memorialization. He asked the question of how family life is changed with the transformation of rituals. What is the difference between ghost and ancestor? Who decides whom we should or should not remember? Let's get started. Morning, Andy. Thanks for joining us today in such a rainy day. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Great. So,、uh, shall we start the interview by sharing your journey into、uh, anthropology? Because I know that you didn't do your、uh, undergraduate degree in anthropology. Yes, that's correct. So I went to undergraduate、uh, in the United States, and in the United States, you tend to just go to university、uh, without picking a major, so you don't have to apply to a particular major. Um, but I went into university. I was a little bit more oriented towards science than to social science or humanities, and I started out as a physics and、um, engineering major.、Um, I got kind of turned off by that one day when we did an experiment, and the experiment involved taking the temperature of some. Fluids as they cooled, and you had to take the temperature every twenty minutes for twenty-four hours, and it was so boring, and it just made me think, no, I'm not, I don't want to be a scientist. And also,、um, I just was getting more and more interested in sort of、uh, issues, social issues around the world, and particularly environmental issues. So then I sort of started going into kind of environmental engineering. Um, and environmental policy, and then at that point, I remember when I was a freshman at university,、uh, somebody showed me this introductory anthropology textbook、um, that、uh, that they were studying, and I had never heard of anthropology before. And I guess you guys can't see it, but there was a picture of something like this on the textbook, and I just thought it was so weird. So it shows a Papua New Guinea、uh, person in their kind of native outfit,、um, and in this case, there, you know, it's one of these sort of modernity and tradition things because they have a metal、uh, teapot that wouldn't be part of their traditional culture, and they're pouring a cup of tea. But I saw that, and I could not imagine. What those people were studying, and I just sort of had absolutely no interest、um, in anthropology at that point.、Um, but then I started taking more and more social science courses in environmental policy,、um, and my major evolved to something called policy studies. So that way, I could use some of the engineering courses that I had taken.、Um, And I took this course. I was very interested in contemporary Africa, and there was this course on contemporary Africa taught by an anthropologist, Hoyt Alverson was his name.、Mm-hmm. And I remember him. He was a very inspirational teacher to me. So once I took that course, I was kind of hooked, and I said, "Oh, so this is what anthropology is about."、Um, and after that, I took about three or more four. More courses in anthropology over the course of my undergraduate years,、um, including another one in linguistic anthropology, also by Hoyt Alverson,、uh, which really also really inspired me. So, I graduated with this major in policy studies, which allowed me 
uh, to sort of combine my social science courses and my engineering courses. Um, but I was really interested in anthropology by the time I graduated. And then I worked for a couple of years and I decided to go into graduate school and I decided I would apply to anthropology programs. So that's um, how I got introduced to anthropology. Can you tell us more about your research interests? I see that you wrote a lot of books and research on contemporary China. What brings you to this topic? Okay, so when I first started graduate school, the first day I got to graduate school, in fact, uh, my, I met my supervisor and she told me that I needed, in those days you didn't, in the United States, you didn't have to have a concrete research proposal when you applied to university. It was mostly best based on like grades and test scores and you could write sort of a general statement of why you were interested in anthropology and the topics you were interested in. Um, and so when I got there, she said, yes, but you also need to pick a part of the world uh, where to do your research. And so I, um, I thought about it for a little while. I was kind of a radical student in those days. And so I was really attracted to Maoism. Um, and this would have been in about 1983, 1984. And then um, I was also a little worried about my job prospects. So I said, oh my goodness, I picked this kind of um, really academic subject to study. And what if I can't get an academic job? And I said, I better, if I have to learn a language in a place, it ought to be a big one that's influential in the world. So then I just said, okay, I'm interested in Maoism and I want a big place, I, I'll pick China. And so I just picked China and I started studying Chinese in my first year of graduate school. So I didn't even start studying Chinese until I was like 24 or something, 25, I don't know when. And what was your um, research about in Nanjing? Okay, in Nanjing, I, I never did any research uh, in the early part of my career. I did do my research, a good part of the research of my funeral book there. But um, so I just went to university in Nanjing and uh, I spent two years there. So, um, so the first year I was just taking those courses at, the, uh, at Nanjing University. And then in the summer after my first academic year, I went to this village in Shandong province. Um, and I was allowed to go there because of my supervisor. Uh, actually, I had two supervisors. This is strange. So this wasn't the supervisor I talked about earlier. I had co-supervisors. I had two co-supervisors. My second, I had a second co-supervisor because my first supervisor didn't know anything about China. And then our department hired an anthropologist, Judith Farquhar, she's also quite famous now, um, who was an, did research on medicine in China. And then Judith Farquhar became involved in this project uh, in this village in Shandong. And so the first summer I, I went there, I was a, a re, her research assistant. And so I went there for a summer and I started doing my own field work in addition to being her research assistant. Um, and as a result of that, I, I kind of understood the village a bit and I was able to write a really good research proposal about what I wanted to study in the village. And that immediately got funded. And so um, this next year though, it was a bit um, coming and going. So I would go back to Nanjing and then go to this village in Shandong. So I would go back and forth. Um, and I was supposed to do that for two more years. Uh, but then that got cut short because of the 1989 Tiananmen protests. And actually my field work, so I was, um, I had to go back to the United States because um, technically I was not kicked out of the country by China, but I was my U.S. funders. So my research at that point was funded by the U.S. government because of this grant proposal that I had written. 
and they demanded that it was now unsafe in China and I had to leave. So um, I went back to the United States. Um, that uh, I had to spend a few months then in, I think I went back to the United States in something like uh, June of 1989. And then um, the end of June of 1989, yeah, I remember that. And then I had done at that point maybe about eight months of field work and it wasn't quite enough for a whole dissertation and I wanted to do some more. Um, and I managed to get the funders to allow me to go back to China again in November. Um, and so that would have been November, 1989. And so I went back a couple more times in early, late 1989 and then early 1990. And I managed to do almost a year of field work. Um, and then I wrote my dissertation. Yeah. So that was your first um, fieldwork experience in China. Yes. What was the um, research topic? Okay, so I was in a village, right? And, you know, when I first was there, my supervisor, Judith Farquhar, was a medical anthropologist. And so what I was doing as her research assistant is she would go around to different families in the village who had experienced an illness in their family and she would ask them about their course of treatment and I would go with her and help her take notes. Um, and what really fascinated me was all of the kind of rituals of, um, what would be the word be of, of politeness or of forming relationships, right? You know, so where you sit and offering tea and offering gifts even and then sometimes be you know cigarettes of course all the time being invited to banquets drinking you know so much drinking um and i decided i wanted to study that so i wanted to study uh the everyday interactions in which people try to form relationships with strangers or hold strangers off so it was a study of gift giving, banqueting, um, terms of address, right? So how people would address you uh, in the village, because they were, that was always a big deal in the village. Is they they had to figure out, you know, what they were going to call you. So they might call you uncle, or very rarely would they call you, um, you know, just by your name, um, and. Uh, yeah, so that, that was the topic of my dissertation. Yeah. How would they call you? Oh, well, of course, it depends on age and gender and many, many other things. So, um, some, so I had a Chinese surname, Ren, and so uh, some people would call me Xiaoren or Laoren, depending on their age. but. Um, some people would just call me Shushu if they were a child or, um, yeah, there were other complicated uh, uh, forms of address that sometimes people could uh, use. So I was married at the time, so they would sometimes call me the husband of my wife's name or... Um, uh, yeah, or refer to me in some way like that, or the friend of so-and-so, yeah. Hmm. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, so, have... so they have like the links of the relationships are spilled out in how they address you. Right, right, right. right. And you're rarely called by your own name, but somebody's yeah. someone, someone's someone, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Going back to the first time you visited China, yeah. How was your memory and how was your feeling? How does it different from what you imagined? Okay, so differences from what I imagined, gosh. Um, well, one thing that I felt um, was that, so I went to Nanjing University and then I went to this village in Shandong and I actually felt that the gap the social, cultural, and economic gap between rural China 
and Nanjing was bigger than the gap between the United States and, you know, going from being at a university in the United States to being at a university uh, in Nanjing. Mm. So that was very interesting to me, was just how different the village was to urban China. And also, um, it going to the village just sort of brought my anthropological training alive because it really, you know, all those sorts of classic topics that you learn about as an anthropologist, like kinship, right? This was a village that had, you know, it wasn't like a Southern lineage village, but still it had these lineage structures. It had, um, uh, you know, the, the, the villagers had drawn up genealogy so they could show back many generations how different families in the village were related to each other. They had, it was a multi-surname village, so there were like Feng, it was, Feng was the major surname, but there was also Zhang's and a few other surnames. But they had uh, worked out generational equivalences between all the families which enabled them always to use kinship terms when addressing one another. So in other words, if you're a Zhang and I'm a Feng, um, I could still call you Ai, for example, if you were of the generation, one generation above me, and were, uh, you know, my, 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 my mother's sister, right? So then, uh, or, or I mean the generational equivalence of my mother's sister. So, so, so there were, there were, they worked out these equivalences because, uh, yeah, so it was just about, you know, using kinship terms and keeping close track of generations. And so um, all these things and the gift giving um, uh, were very, were things I had, you know, kind of learned about as an anthropology student, but sort of thought, oh, those are just some weird things that people in the past did. It doesn't apply to anywhere in the world today. And but no, it did. So, um, yeah. Afterwards, you continue on your um, research in China, but how does the um, research topic um, shift? Right, so then um, I had one sort of, after I finished my dissertation, um, I had one kind of a project which was about religion um, and that came about because I was uh, let's see when I was in so I went to this village and you know if you know the organization in China so villages belong to townships and townships belong to counties um, and so but the county was the key thing for me because the county was a level of government that approved my research and I would always go into the county seat where this village was located uh, before I went to the village. Um, and so I spent some time in the county seat and there, were, there was a church in the county seat. There still is. Um, and some of the Christians, of course, they saw me. I was a very conspicuous figure in this county. Um, and they would come up to me and talk to me about Christianity. So I did do a little bit of research on Christianity um, based on this church, but I also, at a certain point, I, so I, again, this was not, uh, I did it because it seemed uh, very easy to do because these people were approaching me. I didn't even need to approach them. And they, you know, they were perhaps thought because I was white that I was naturally a Christian. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I don't know exactly why. But anyway, I found out later that the police were, um, would follow up with anybody I had a conversation with. So, you know, if I had a conversation with you, you know, the next day the police would visit you and ask you what you talked about. And I found out about this and decided I needed to stop this research. So. That was over a period of maybe three or four years. So it was three or four years, but not three or four years of research. This was really started when I was in the United States and I couldn't really go back um, uh, very often. And then when I first got to Australia, 
And so maybe it was three or four years of like three or four weeks a year or something like that. Yeah, very uh, sporadic sort of research. Um, and at the same time, so as I was figuring out that that wasn't really a feasible long-term project, um, I was also approached by people there to teach English a lot. Um, and I realized that this gave me an in to the schools and the schools were also interesting to me um, from a cultural point of view because Chinese education is very famous for being, uh, you know, sort of having this Confucian um, background to it. And I thought it was a really good topic to go at basic questions of culture. So this was a point in time when people were saying culture doesn't exist, there's no such thing, it's a weird... Uh, and I said, well, where, where would the concept of culture be applicable to China? And I thought that uh, if any place it would be in the education, you know, where in modern China, in contemporary China, is there is a phenomenon that's really at the same time very, very clearly modern, and at the same time it seems to be cultural. And could you study that? And so that that drew me to education. And then also the fact that it seemed quite possible because I was having this good relationship with the education bureau in the county seat because I was volunteering to teach English. I would teach English to their English teachers. Mm -hmm. So they would arrange for, you know, like primary school English teachers and then junior middle school English teachers and things like that. So. Um, I decided to shift to education, and this uh, also then sociologically, I was I real I had the opportunity to go to many schools in the county um, through the education bureau, and I realized it was possible for me to compare schools in the rural. Uh, you know, there were still some in the villages, but they were moving them to the townships. So township schools. Uh, and schools in the county seat, which was more urban, and then people who worked in the county at that point had urban huko, and, they, and, and so there was some, somewhat of a contrast I could do in a single um, uh, education system. So I was also interested in that. And so that drew me, and I spent maybe 10 years studying uh, the education system in this county, um, uh, or more than 10 years, um, yeah. And then as I was doing that, so that was my next really big project was on education in this county. And then as I was doing that, this, the county sit, seat just exploded in size as it started to really urbanize. So it went from like 35,000 people to 350,000 people in over a 10 year period. And that was when I was doing this education project. And I said, oh, I really need to study urbanization next. So then I did urbanization. So that's how I got to urbanization. And I did that for maybe seven or eight years. And then I got drawn into research on the funerary industry. Why did I get interested in that? I mean, I was thinking about what topic to do next after I finished urbanization. The political environment was changing. So I had this really good relationship to the county um, in, because I had been going there for a long time and because of my teaching English, but I could feel that uh, the county started off being extremely welcoming and open to foreign researchers, but I could feel the whole atmosphere was changing and they didn't really like me being there anymore. I mean, they didn't say it, but I, I could feel it and other things happened. Uh, there was a another student um, uh, who got kicked out of, of the county I was in um, for going to villages while, without authorization um, and other incidents like that. And I, uh, I, I was kind of also getting really sick of, I had spent more than 25 years in this county and I was thinking, you know, I don't know, I, I'm not sure I want to do another project here or not. Um, and uh, so I was thinking I wanted to do something in a bigger city. Maybe I would go back to Nanjing. I also had good connections for research. And I was thinking about topics. And uh, one of the things was ritual industries. Mm 
So, um, and I talked around with a bunch of people, but I decided to go with uh, ritual industries and weddings and funerals in particular. So there's a funerary industry and a wedding industry. Um, and I thought it was interesting because this is somehow related to urbanization because in villages, right, funerals and weddings are arranged by elder members of the family. And there are, you know, there's always some, you know, lineage elder who's expert in funerals or expert in weddings. And, um, and there are all sorts of matchmakers and uh, who would do weddings and things like that. But, you know, in urban areas, this is really becoming a commercial industry. Right. And, um, and so it's a completely different mode of, of organization. And happening as China urbanizes, more and more people are moving from the one mode of organization to another mode of organization in these things. So I wrote a grant proposal on that. And, um, you know, it involved a comparison of the wedding and funeral, uh, and funeral industries. And I had a PhD student, the grant was structured, so I got a PhD student to do one and I was going to do the other. And uh, the PhD students was much more, uh, being a young person, wanted to do the weddings. And so I did the funerals, but I was basically just cold calling. So I would just say, hello, I'm this strange foreigner and I'm interested in doing research on funerals and could you tell me uh, anything about your business or you know and some people weren't very receptive but others were and so I, I would just go to the ones that were receptive and um, I would go around to all the funeral homes I would uh, go to cemeteries so cemeteries they're mostly public you can just walk into them and walk around some of them are even quasi-tourist attractions to begin with. So some of them are like uh, places of communist propaganda because they have party martyrs buried there and they have so on and so forth. And so, you know, you can just walk in and look at all the tombstones and see what's going on there. Sometimes there'll be burial ceremonies, um, you know, all sorts of things go on there. Um, so I spent a fair amount of time at cemeteries because I didn't need an invitation. I would cold call, cold call all these businesses, um, and some of them were receptive to me. And then I had my friends and relatives, and I would, you know, I would say, oh, you know, uh, and my own parents have passed away, and I've arranged their funerals, and I would just, you know, say, you know, oh, you know, I remember when I arranged my mother's funeral, and, you know, had to do this and that and you know and I would find out who among the people I knew so I would never ask about people who had like a spouse or a child who died but people who had arranged the funerals of their parents so I could um, just kind of do snowball samples among my kind of friends and relatives uh, to hear stories from people who had arranged the funerals of their parents and so I also did that so those were my major um, research activities for the project on funerals. Right. And that's how you wrote the book that's just published this year. Yes. The death of Mr. Wang. Right, the funeral of Mr. The Wang. The funeral of Mr. Wang, yeah. right. Yeah. And who's Mr. Wang? Oh, that's a pseudonym, so I'm not allowed to say who that person really is, but that's one. Uh, so for one of these people that I organized, um, a uh, interview of about the funeral of their parent so this was the best one and I actually got um, three very long interviews about this funeral because I knew two sisters so Mr. Wong was the parent of both the sisters and I also had interviewed the um, the, the man who ran the business that organized their funeral. So he was one of the, um, one of the uh, business owners who was most receptive to me. And I actually uh, spent a fair amount of time at his shop. So I had these three very detailed portraits of this funeral. And I thought that I would organize the book by first depicting in great detail one funeral that I knew a lot about, um, and then 
you know, organizing sort of various topics um, about my research. And the other thing about this research is, so it was mostly initially focused in Jinan and Nanjing, but I found I could do a little bit anywhere. So I found out, you know, I realized that I could go to a cemetery in almost any city I visited in China. And so I would start visiting cemetery after cemetery after cemetery all around China. I also realized that I could kind of do a bit of cold calling at funeral homes and I could just, you know, you could just walk into the funeral home. You can look around at all the signs. You can see what they're selling. You can see the prices for that are advertised on the board. You can sometimes they have books full of recommended sayings to put on tombstones. You can read that sort of thing. And then after you've walked around for a while and looked at all these things, then you can, you know, you can ask, you can try to talk to some people there. Um, so I started doing this basic activity of just going to cemeteries and funeral homes um, in a bunch of cities all around China. And uh, so I, that enabled me also to add kind of a bit of a comparative dimension because there were definitely differences um, among cities. Um, and there were also some, you know, I'm sure there are global aspects. I know there are global aspects to the cemetery or the funerary business, but there are definitely national aspects in China. So there are big firms trying to organize, they buy cemeteries all around China. They um, sell funerary insurance all around China. They try to arrange, kind of build web platforms for people who are, are you know, there, there are all sorts of these kind of China-wide um, organizations involved in the funerary sector in China. And so I, um, I also had some interviews with people uh, in some of these places and, uh, and that was also, so this project took on much more of a, Nanjing was the major site, but it, it became much more of kind of a comparative thing because of the nature of the industry, I would say. Um, and also, you know, this kind of the ease with which you can just go to a cemetery anywhere in China. Um, you know, most people don't go to cemeteries because of their superstition. And also from the employment aspect, there's also a China-wide aspect, which is that there are certain schools in China where you can major in funerary studies, really? and there are only a few of them. And the biggest one is in Changsha. Mm -hmm. And that one has, um, I can't remember the exact statistics, something like uh, 300 of the people who run funeral homes already all around China have graduated from this one place in Chang this one uh, social work university in Changsha, uh, the Department of Funerary Studies there. So I also did a bit of a, I visited that school and interviewed some people there uh, and learned about how their networks were crisscrossing China. So this is also something that becomes uh, China-wide. So I really was approaching, approaching the funerary industry, not just from a particular place, but uh, from the perspective of something that was growing around China. Right. And I imagine the topic of death and ghosts and funerary, a funeral can be a sensitive topic or yes. like a taboo for um, Chinese, especially the elderly. Um, yeah, I think it is a bit. And so it's interesting, right? Because this is one of the tensions around it, um, is that so I think there is a lot of taboo about it. And that was part of my study. I think the taboo becomes stronger as China urbanizes. So you get things like, you know, you're not allowed to have funerary activities in an apartment building. And that becomes the bigger the city gets, the stronger those rules are. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, you know, so for example, um, in some smaller cities, um, you have a big apartment building, but people will set up a tent outside of the apartment building 
um, when there's a funeral uh, in their family. And it becomes a bit like a community event in that all the people from, and this is particularly so if it was a work unit apartment building. So everybody in the, um, so there would be lots of people who could stop by. But that sort of thing is completely, it's illegal. You'll get fined for it in China's biggest cities. You cannot do that. Some of them even say you cannot even, like it used to be traditional, outside of your apartment door, you would hang certain things that indicate that there's been a death and that, you know, people can come by and pay their condolences and you're not allowed to do that in, in um, uh, uh, you know, or set up a home altar. People would set up home altars in Nanjing, but in Tianjin and Shanghai, you know, no, that's it. So the bigger the city gets, uh, the more restrictions there are on sort of funerary activities and the more separation there is between life and death, I say. And uh, so, of course, in a village, there's very little separation at all. The people are buried right in the village fields and, uh, you know, and, and the body is stored at the home before it's cremated and so on and so forth. So it's um, that's one aspect of the change of urbanization of these sorts of taboos. But still, right, there are some things that people will do. So, for example, um, buying a plot in a cemetery. So people would buy these in advance because the price was rising. It was like buying real estate, right? And then the government in various places would make rules. You're not allowed to buy them in advance. Or you can only buy them in advance if you're over 80 or if you have something, a certificate from a doctor saying you're about to die or something like this. Um, and so, uh, you know, and this was kind of like, you could read in traditional times how people would buy a coffin in advance. So, so there were some things. So on the one hand, you're not allowed to talk about death and people avoid it. On the other hand, there were things that people did anticipating their own death or the death of someone in their family. So this was, uh, one definitely one aspect of it and the people and that was another reason I found it useful to go in from the death industry point of view because if you talk to the people in the industry um, other people are stigmatizing them mm. and so that makes them kind of more open to someone like me right because they're used to people avoiding them and here I was saying, hello, I'm this strange foreigner. Would you like to chat with me? And I think you're a great person for doing this. And yeah, so it, it opened up some people, right? So those people would definitely be willing to talk. If they were willing to talk to me, you know, because I'm a foreign researcher who doesn't really know them, um, they were definitely open to talking about deaths. And so I could say, oh, you know, how many funerals do you do a year? And uh, tell me about some of the biggest ones you've done this year and you know, they would uh, all sorts of things they could tell you about um, Did you also do some research for this project here in Hong Kong? Yeah, and I did a little research in Hong Kong as well. And so um, I visited a few cemeteries uh, The one up in Fanling is the biggest one that I found and that was very interesting to me um, I went there with a undergraduate research assistant actually, and we spent a day or two there um, walking around. And I, of course, there are lots of booklets and books about, uh, you know, what to do if you pass away in Hong Kong, and, you know, for a relative, not if you pass away, you can't do anything, but if you have a relative who passes away, you know, what your options are and what the procedures are. And so I read all these books. Um, a lot of that material is online. Um, and yeah, so that was sort of what I, uh, done in Hong Kong, collected ghost stories. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I see that ghost is a big part of your book, right? Yes. What are like, what are some of the ghost stories or things that related to, yeah. to ghosts? Um, that's more. Let's see. So there's also another aspect of the, this, which is political. Um, so I think that ghosts are also political and especially in mainland China. So that's a contrast between here and mainland China. And 
Yeah, so I mean, you know, you're not allowed to talk about ghosts from the Cultural Revolution or ghosts of Tiananmen Square. I mean, people sometimes do, but I mean, in all sorts of official ghost stories or, or ghost stories that are posted online, um, there, there seem to be lots of restrictions. So the type of ghost stories you can find online on literature websites and places like that are quite uh, limited in China, I would say, in many ways. Um, and ghosts, of course, I began to think of ghosts as things that should not be remembered, right? So, in other words, like, I don't know if you've heard this, uh, there's a famous article on Chinese religion, something like God's Ghosts and Ancestors. Have you heard of this sort of trio? Um, so anyway, there's, what's the difference between an ancestor and a ghost? So this is a question. So one way that people would answer that, that they would say that it has to do with your relationship to them. So like your uh, deceased loved one becomes your ancestor. But to me, they're just a ghost because it, we have a different. So if you're a stranger, they're a ghost. Um, but if they're your own relative, they're an ancestor. So this would be um, one distinction. But I think another distinction is ghosts are things that haunt you, that come after you. Um, they're like things you remember whether you want to or not, whether you're supposed to or not, right? And a soul or an ancestor is something that you're supposed to remember. You're not being filial if you forget them. So there's this is another aspect of the distinction. And so from a political point of view, right, the Communist Party has all its martyrs all these, you know, I told you I would go to these cemeteries, right? So all these things you're supposed to remember, right? These people that you should remember. Uh, so one way that uh, village communities are erased is by uh, scattering the members of the community into new urban districts rather than reproducing the village as a whole in a single apartment. But the same thing happens with the community of the dead. So uh, when you're going to dig up a village cemetery, um, you give the ashes back to each individual family, and then you give them some minimal compensation, but probably not enough to buy a graveyard plot. And then, when, then you say each excuse me, each family, it's up to you what to do with those ashes. So you can go find some cemetery plot somewhere, or you can have them made into a medallion, or you can shoot them off to space, or you can scatter them in the ocean, right? It's up to you what to do. And so the community of the dead will never be the same community again, because each family will do something different. Um, and so that's a uh, another way in which sort of the memory of this community is um, forgotten or is encouraged to be forgotten. Um, and so, I mean, I, all this raises questions of ghosts, right? And I, so I began to see ghosts through this lens of things that should be forgotten, right? And what does it mean to be should be forgotten? It could mean that the government thinks they should be forgotten, but it also could be at a familial level. So there might be some things within a family that some people think should be forgotten, um, that other people don't think should be forgotten. And so it's, it's, it's this question of, um, you know, what should be forgotten and what should be remembered uh, when you're memorializing the dead. Yeah. And as the um, funeral activities are being industrialized in urbanized China, yeah. it impacts the um, family relationship and also the interpersonal relationship a lot, right? Um, yeah, well, that's so complicated because so many things impact uh, interpersonal relationships at the same time. So it's hard to kind of tease them apart. But I think if you look at urbanization in general, um, one of the big themes is, of course, becoming a society of strangers. So a big urban area is full of strangers. 
and this is true with death, right? Where your cemetery, where you bury your relatives, it's also full of strangers, which also makes it spookier. So this is another aspect of the ghosts, right? Because I said ghosts are somehow related to strangers instead of your own ancestors. So if you had a village cemetery, right, that was probably all your own relatives at least, or people who you were closely acquainted with and there, right? And so it's not as spooky as an urban cemetery in, in some sense. Uh, the people who run the funerary industry, they're not your relatives, but they're these strangers who you do business with. And then you kind of, they, they kind of become stigmatized because they're doing this business in this area that seems kind of really personal right and very intimate but then you still have to let them into your family and a bit spooky yeah so it's um yeah so there are many aspects of urbanization that affect uh, familial relationships can I ask about the cover of your new book? It's a yes. photo of a number of it's, Chinese words yeah, yeah. on the wall of yeah. kind of negative connotations. So right. what's that photo about and why did you choose it? Yes, so that gets back to this aspect of politics and what should be forgotten. So um, you know that in China, such expression is really restricted. And so it's very, I never saw it before. That was the first time I ever saw graffiti like that with these very negative uh, words. And it really shocked me. So where did I see it? So it was really interesting. Um, I had asked, uh, and this is another aspect of urbanization and ghosts, right? So I had asked some students in a Chinese city, oh, can you tell me about places in this city that are said to be haunted, right? And so they directed me to this one place, which was, of course, it's almost always places where all the buildings are abandoned because they're being slated to be destroyed, right? Um, and so there's a lot of, of course, part of urbanization in China, there's all this chai chien, right? All the, the, you know, and so there are entire districts or places that are kind of temporarily abandoned. And so I went to this one, it was at the back of a university where they were going to destroy some old buildings, some old dorms and make some new ones. And there was a little wall there that marcated the boundary of the university, right? Like lots of universities have walls about them, but there was nobody living there anymore. And that's where I saw this, right? And so, um, you know, I was just playing with this idea. Is this place haunted? Uh, because it's about to be abandoned and people used to live there? Or is it haunted because these words are there? You know, that you're not, you know, what is the relationship of these words to the haunting? And um, I was thinking about that and it just struck me that there is a relation, right? And it's a relationship of um, abandonment, right? Or being, um, you know, what allows these words to exist there? You could say from a secular point of view, it would be because nobody official ever goes back there and nobody noticed them, right? And so somehow they've survived. But, you know, what is it that makes people say this place is haunted? Well, it's also because it's being abandoned. And, um, you know, there used to be people who lived there. Who knows what used to happen there? You know, maybe there, maybe there were murders in that dorm. Maybe terrible things happened there. Maybe there are ghosts there. Um, and who knows? Maybe the ghosts wrote the uh, graffiti, right? And so... Um, yeah, so this is part of the idea of abandonment and ghosts and political haunting. Um, right. Yeah, and what you're not supposed to talk about. Right. So how does this um, research um, change or shape how you look at life or death or ghosts? Um, yeah, okay, so for me, this particular research, I mean, one thing that... I changed my mind about as a result of doing this research was when I first started this research, I was probably like a lot of maybe, you know, middle class people or intellectuals uh, would think, you know, that when I die, I just want everything to be as simple as possible. Just scatter my ashes somewhere and, uh, you know, we 
don't need to waste my my son should not waste money on a big funeral and I just want everything simple and I don't really reject that anymore but now I've just more come to realize it's not my choice and it shouldn't be my choice so I should not say how I am to be remembered and I cannot control how I am remembered and it's just like writing a book I've decided so if I write a book right, and somebody else reads it or cites it or uses it in their research, they can then take my book and make their own argument. They can say whatever they want, really, and they could probably even say things I don't agree with at all, right, and say, and then cite my book at the end of the sentence, right? And I realize that that's all right, right? I can't control that. That's part of putting yourself out there. And when you put yourself out there in the world, it's for other people to use in some ways. And so, um, you know, probably nobody will remember me. But if somebody wants to make a big fuss and say, oh, we have to have a march in downtown Hong Kong to memorialize Andrew Kipnis because he stood for X. And of course, maybe I never stood for X, but I can't control that, right? That's other people. And, you know, that whatever happens with my funeral, it's, it's, it shouldn't be my choice, I decided. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I, I really, so now I don't have any directive for my children, or, you know, it's really up to them, whatever they want to do. Okay. okay. So I guess um, I have one last question to yeah. kind of sum up our um, interview today. So after, after um, studying and being an anthropologist for um, most of your life, how would you say anthro- anthropology um, shaped the way you see the world differently? Of course, that's a tough question, and I probably don't know the answer, right? Again, it's something that, you know, it's very hard to say. So I've been changed in so many ways over the years, I can't remember, but I would guess it certainly makes me more comparative and cosmopolitan. So I'm always interested in comparing um, different points of view and different groups of people and people from different times and different places and different backgrounds. And, and why would these people think differently than me? Why would they think the same as me? Um, um, so I'm, I think it, 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 um, it makes me more focused on this sort of comparative aspects of life. Great. Thank you so much, Andy, for your time today. And that's all we have time for today. So thank you. Great. Okay. Thanks for interviewing me. And I hope it's useful. (laughs) Thanks for listening to our first episode from CUHK Anthropology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Coming up, we are having a conversation with Professor Gordon Matthews, on his field stories, his memory of the department, and his view on happiness and meanings of life. Stay tuned.